Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. I am the parent of a 16-year-old who recently had a large surgery for a leg fracture. The doctor sent her home with opioid pain medication, but I was nervous to give it to her in case she would become addicted. Can you talk a little bit about normal pediatric post-operative pain? So this is a really good question, and Dr. Lena and I um, don't do operations. (laughs) (laughs) What? Uh, Well, I I do circumcisions, but... That's Tylenol all the way after that. (laughs) Okay. So um, for something like this question, we need need an actual surgeon who has experience with this. So today we're welcoming um, Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon here at UC Davis Children's Hospital. And he has a passion for minimally invasive surgeries, trauma, health communication. And he's a podcaster, too, who developed the SET podcast, a podcast exploring innovations in surgery from the University of Wisconsin. So he'll be our expert in terms of joining us and explaining the management of post-operative pain for, for children. Absolutely. And we know that, like, of course, as a parent, you're going to worry about pain after your kid has surgery or even before they go in for surgery. And of course, there's different surgeries, right? Your kid might be getting ear tubes or your kid may have been in a car accident and sustained really bad fractures. Those are two very different surgeries that are going to require a lot of different pain control. So we're really happy to have Dr. Kohler here. And I just am curious if you could walk us through kind of what techniques you guys in surgery use to assess pain in pediatric patients, both before and after surgery. How do we assess pain in pediatric patients? It really varies by age. And there are a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses to pain having become the so-called fifth vital sign, um, which is like something that uh, you know happened many years ago and has in some ways driven prescribing of a lot more pain medicines, but has also uh, driven the development of some really good pain scoring techniques. Um, and so there are age-dependent uh, scoring scales um, that we use depending on the age of the kid. Sometimes it's like looking at their grimace or their cry. Sometimes it's asking them to rate their scale on a pain of one to 10. But really the only way you can know how much pain someone is in is to ask them if at all possible. And then if if you can't, then, you know, you look for physical signs and and other vital sign changes. Oh, I know. And it's so hard. And and parents are always like, oh, well, he has a really high pain tolerance or she complains about everything. And you're like, it's it becomes really, really challenging um, because obviously the parent isn't the child, so they're not in their body experiencing what it is, um, but they also know their kids. So that that has always been really challenging for me, too. And pain is incredibly subjective, right? It's not a heart rate and a respiratory rate. It is an individual experience that's informed by all of your previous experience, not just like what's happening in the moment, too. Yeah, and those pain scales, they have been well-studied, they have been validated, and there are different ones that different hospitals will use for for inpatients, at least. They'll they'll use different scales um, depending um, on on their philosophy, but they have been, you know, very well-studied. And, you know, I know especially the nurses that um, I I deal with are really experts at, at evaluating children's pain. So let's start by talking first about non-pharmacologic, so non-medications that can be used to help 
with pain or, you know, fearfulness or, I mean, pain, ideally, before and after surgery? What kind of things do you use? In the inpatient environment, particularly at a children's hospital like uh, UC Davis, probably the single best pain control technique we have, even including pain medications, is, <laughs> uh, is child life specialists um, and parents, like people who can help distract the kid, give them um, games to play, uh, kind of take their mind off of the situation. That's particularly true around anxiety, but it's also true around pain. Um, so, you know, again, it sort of varies by age, but, um, you know, an infant will put up with a lot if they're in their mom's arms and particularly if they're breastfeeding. Um, sometimes we'll give them what are called sweeties, which are basically like sugar water. Uh, and that can be a pretty effective anesthetic actually, um, or analgesic, uh, in terms of taking away pain. In older kids, you know, resting in bed, not running around uh, after surgery. Ice packs sometimes help. Cold packs sometimes help, depending on the situation and uh, the individual person. And then, honestly, and this has been well studied, iPads are a very <laughs> yeah. effective pain medicine. Yeah, it's a distractor, right? Like, yeah. um, distraction is an, is an awesome technique. And so I totally agree. I'm the first person to hand over an iPad or a VR headset or something like that to get to distract. What about when medications are needed? What what kind of are the common medications that you go to? Yeah, so our standard practice, um, and I think this is pretty universal, is you know we try to avoid opioid pain medications when we can, knowing that there are sometimes we won't be able to. So my standard for kids is Tylenol. And you can get Tylenol IV now. So like we'll even give it to kids who aren't able to eat after surgery. And that provides a really nice sort of baseline pain reduction. It's not great at treating new pain, but it's really good at kind of like keeping existing pain down. We'll use ibuprofen oftentimes, or there's a, a sort of an IV version of that called Ketorolac. And then if we you know, are finding that uh, those aren't working, then we can sort of go towards the bigger guns. And um, one of the, the ones we'll use are, are opioid pain medications, but we'll try to really minimize their dose. And then there are a couple there are a couple medicines in that sort of opioid pain class, specifically codeine and tramadol that we absolutely won't give to children um, because there are some significantly increased risks around those specific medications. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about those risks and why we want to avoid those two medications in children? And we did put a, a the link to a video that you created on our website um, detailing some of those risks, but but go into it for our parents today. Yeah, so codeine uh, is a medicine that's been around for a long time. Tramadol is a medicine that's relatively new. Both of them are opioid pain medications. It's the way they work, specifically those drugs, that is the concern. The codeine is probably the best example. It, it's a medicine that, in and of itself, actually doesn't do anything, um, but your body uh, digests it, breaks it down, and in the process of breaking it down, turns it from codeine uh, into morphine which everybody's heard of. It's a very potent opioid. And the reason they developed it was because it did a nice job of sort of being broken down gradually over time and sort of provide you with a durable relief, whereas like just injecting someone with morphine gives them like a short period of pain relief. Coding can do it longer. It's also a really good cough, cough suppressant, so it's often been used in cough suppressing medications. The problem is that not everybody digests it at the same speed. And some people who are called hypermetabolizers will digest their codeine essentially immediately, all of it into morphine. And then they basically have a morphine overdose and stop breathing. 
Now, that problem is worst, was first identified in kids who were having tonsil surgery, so airway surgery where their airway was swollen anyway, so they were at increased risk of having problems. But um, we've come to recognize that there are all sorts of risk factors for having respiratory problems after taking codeine, and we're really bad at predicting who's going to have that response um, because it's really variable. And so uh, as a result, the FDA has issued black box warnings about codeine and because tramadol follows a similar path for tramadol as well, um, basically saying don't use them in children. That doesn't mean they're not still used in children. So a parent should be vigilant. And you know, if someone prescribes codeine for their child, they should. Um, sort of, that's a good opportunity to push back and, and request a different medication. Yeah, and those black box warnings are ones that we really take seriously. Those are like the most the, the highest level red alert kind of thing for for physicians to look at. That that's that could be a real problem. Absolutely. I'm wondering if there are certain pain medications that are better for different types of surgery. So, you know, I'm thinking about the leg fracture questions, like an orthopedic injury or like a more visceral injury, like after an appendicitis. Does that have any influence on what pain medicine you might choose or not so much? No, it absolutely does. You know, and I will say that, you know, leg fracture uh, opioid prescriptions are not my area of expertise, but um, I will tell you, you know, they, they sort of fall into this category of like acute localized pain, right? Like your bone is broken and it hurts at the place where it's broken. Whereas sort of generalized abdominal pain um, doesn't really have as much of a specific target. So opioid pain medications are pretty good for that sort of acute pain. And so are Tylenol and, and ibuprofen. Yeah. Where we run into problems with opioids specifically is if we're using them to treat, you know, in my particular field's experience, um, pain that is sort of generalized abdominal pain and particularly pain that's generalized abdominal pain related to the intestines not moving well. So if your intestines aren't moving well, which is really common after surgery, um, more after abdominal surgery, but it can happen after really any operation, you can get what's called an ileus where your intestines move slowly and they get dilated that dilation stretches the wall of the intestine and it causes a lot of discomfort. And if you give opioids for that, you make it worse because the intestines start moving even more slowly. You get even more constipated. Things get even more dilated and it hurts even worse. And you can get into a really bad cycle where then you give more opioid pain medicine and it gets worse. And so you give more medicine. And what you really need to do is stop giving the medication to give things a chance to start moving again. Yeah, that is a great point. Again, another thing that we need to communicate better with our patients and families sometimes about why we are avoiding these things. What about local pain management techniques like nerve blocks? When would you use those? So we do almost all of our, certainly elective operations and even many of our emergency operations, we do them laparoscopically now, which means that you're left with uh, pretty small incisions. And if you have a small area where the skin has been injured, we'll often just inject local anesthetic right around there. And that'll give you six to eight hours of pain relief. And then when that wears off, sort of the worst of the pain should be gone. And often Tylenol and ibuprofen is fine for pain. For larger incisions um, or places where it, it's challenging to just inject local anesthetic, um, then there are things like more what are called regional blocks um, where you know a pain specialist either, you know sometimes we'll do it, sometimes the anesthesiologist will do it, will kind of find the nerves that feed that area and inject them with a local anesthetic. So it's not right at the site, but it's hitting the nerves that lead to that site. Um, and that can provide a nice durable pain relief over a larger area. And then there are things like epidurals where you um, put anesthetic directly 
next to the nerves of the spinal column. Um, and that can give you large blocks where like you don't feel anything below your belly button, say. Like that's a common thing in pregnancy. And even for abdominal surgery. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, even just what we've talked about so far, you know, you can see that there are lots of different options for treating pain. And um, I do want to go in and talk a little bit more about opioids specifically, because obviously there has been some controversy or there's some hesitation around them. And we already talked about one of the downsides, which is that they make you constipated <laughs> and slow your gut down. Um but, you know, parents may recognize some of the more common, like, generic or brand names of these. I, there's a whole list. You can Google them. But, you know, fentanyl, morphine, Dilaudid, oxycodone, um, Norco. So, you know, if you have something and you're not really sure if it's an opioid, you know, go to the computer, ask your doctor. But you definitely want to know what you or your child is taking, right, if you get something. Um, and, you know, sometimes they may be necessary on a very limited basis after a large surgery. But, of course, you know, we need to do a good job of counseling families about how to use these medications. What are they? Like, what does the data show to about developing a long-term addiction, which, of course, many parents are worried about? So I'm hoping you could just kind of go through your spiel about if you are going to send a kid home with a limited supply of these. How do you talk to families about that? Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think one of the most important things is to tell them you're sending them home with an opioid pain medication because, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've asked a patient or a parent, like, you know, are you using opioids? And they're like, no, I'm not using any opioids, just this Vicodin. <laughs> and it's like, right, no one has told you it's an opioid. And so like we, are, we do need to make clear, like this is an opioid pain medicine. And I think most people these days sort of have some sense of what that means, or at least like what it means to sort of be taking a medicine that's in that class of opioids, which is that there is a risk and a, it's a risk that went underappreciated for far too long that um, there is a risk of developing dependence. Um, now, exactly, you know, what an individual's risk of dependence is, or like how many pills you have to take before you develop dependence. Like, it's really, really, really hard to know. Um, what are some things we do know? We know that like the longer you take these medications, the more likely you are to become dependent on them. The higher the dose you take, the more likely you are to become dependent on them. Um, but you know, my lab has also done some studies looking at opioid pain prescriptions um, across very minor surgical procedures, um, and has found that you know even among very minor surgical procedures where you would expect patients to actually not even need any opioids. Um, if they are prescribed opioids, about 6% of them will fill a second prescription after 30 days, which um, is one marker that we use for chronic opioid use disorders. Let's talk about um, pain control from a racial equity point of view. There have been multiple studies over the years that have found that black children are less likely to have their pain treated than their white counterparts. And one study that I'm thinking about um, was by Mokaya Goyle and our own pediatric emergency department chief, Dr. Nate Cooperman. This was racial disparities in pain management of children with appendicitis in emergency departments. This was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2015, and it found that black children were less likely to receive any pain medication for moderate pain and less likely to receive opioids for severe pain. So what can we do to make sure that racial biases don't play a role in treating pain? You know, we talked at the top about pain rating scales, and they're only as good as they are, right? They have to be administered in an unbiased way. 
um, and they have to be, you know, sensitive to differences in the way that people display pain or are, um, you know, comfortable expressing pain. Um, so, I mean, you talk about racial disparities, but, you know, another area where I think we really need to be thoughtful is in, um, in patients with neurodiversity, right? So autistic kids present with pain really differently and have a hard time communicating. Um, kids with cerebral palsy or other, you know, kids who just can't communicate well, you know, we have a lot of assumptions about what pain looks like. And, you know, as in many areas of medicine, I think a lot of those assumptions are based in sort of what do sort of culturally dominant pain scales look like. So, you know, we have to have a systematic approach. We have to have um, some standardized, you know, dosing around pain medications, I think. Just say like, look, we know you're going to need Tylenol after the surgery. We know that we should like give you medicine and talk to you about it. Honestly, though, I think the single best thing we can do if we want to know if a patient is in pain is ask the parents. Like they know. Like they will know. Then it doesn't matter how difficult it is to communicate with a kid. Like a parent will know if their child's in pain and you should listen to them. And if the parent's not around, the other thing you can do is, you know, you can look at other vital signs. So is the kid, you know, is their heart rate high? Do they, you know, are they showing other physiologic manifestations of being in pain? But, you know, honestly, as in most things in medicine, like ask mom. <laughs> Absolutely. They know best big time. So once a kid is discharged from the hospital following surgery, how can parents help manage pain at home um, once they're back and, and maybe they have, you know, Tylenol, they've got Motrin, um, maybe they have a short supply of something a little stronger. What do you tell parents to do? So I think the most important thing to say is that, like, some pain is okay. Like, you don't want to get to a pain score of zero because that's general anesthesia and, like, you don't want that at home, right? After an injury or an operation, like, you're going to be sore and that's okay. Um, you should be taking it easy. You should be like having those screen time rules lifted. You should not be getting right back to full activity. You know, what I'll often say, parents will often, you know, little kids say, you know, how do I keep my four-year-old from doing anything that hurts? And I'm like, well, you know, you can't tie them down, um, but you can sort of trust them to like, don't do it if it hurts. And I, and in teenagers, I'll, I'll, I'll just come right out and say it. Like, if it hurts, don't do it. And it will get better over time. Um, but you just need to kind of take it easy. I think that's the most important thing. So the very small percentage of kids who do end up at home on opioids, what do you tell the patients? What do you tell the families about their use and the risks? We're really making a point now of sending kids home if we send them home with opioids, which is actually rare and getting rarer. You know, we'll send them home with just a few doses and we'll say, like, only use them if you really need them. Um, you should be sort of taking that Tylenol and ibuprofen and using those more powerful medications only if those medicines aren't working well. If you find that you're using them a lot or needing them more, like we want to know about it because that may be a sign of a problem because pain should get better day on day. And then when we're giving you these medicines, you need to recognize that they're a, a health risk and not just to the patient that, you know, the vast majority of opioid supply, you know, to people who are misusing it is what's called diversion. It's like, people going through your medicine cabinet or, you know, friends or relatives like finding and taking those medicines. So the most important thing you can do is, is the second you don't need them around anymore is to safely dispose of them. 
Right. And how do they safely dispose of them? Because I've seen this in my own family. I mean, I'm sure you guys have too, right? Like, you're like, why is grandma's like opioids from like a surgery 10 years ago still (laughs) in our cabinet? So how do we safely get rid of them? Right. Well, I'm the founder of a website called saferopioids.com that uh, promotes safe opioid use, provides resources for physicians and parents on how to use safe opioids. And I say that not only as like total self-promotion, but because in the process of putting that together, that website, I was like, well, I should probably look around my house and make sure I don't have any opioids. And I found 150 opioid tablets around my house from, you know, things that had been prescribed to members of my family, things that had been prescribed to me like 15 years ago. There were medications for my cat. Um, you know, they were all over. And, and then it was a question of like, how do you safely dispose of them? And there are, there's not a great standardized way to do that. Like in every community, some places, um, pharmacies will have, you know, take opioid, take back some hospitals will have places where you can kind of bring your opioids and dispose of them. Um, there are, uh, some, some pharmacies when they give you opioids now will give you like a neutralizing agent that you can put them in. Um, and one common thing that they tell you to do is like, mix them up with something very unpalatable, like used cat litter and throw them away. There are a lot of different resources out there. And, you know, I think each individual community is going to be different, but like asking, certainly asking like your pharmacist or your physician in your local community, like how to get rid of these things, like each individual community will know what the the options are. So what should parents do if the child's pain doesn't seem to be responding to the pain medication that they were sent home with? What's the next step? Yeah. So like pain is not a bad thing, right? It is a marker that you have a problem. Um, And so when we send kids home from the hospital after an injury or after an operation, like we're sending them home with the expectation that their pain should be getting better. And sometimes it waxes and wanes, right? Like your, your pain feels pretty good. So you start moving more. So your pain gets a little bit worse. And you know, so it does is a little bit of a stuttering process, but the trend should always be towards things getting better. And if they're not, then that's when you should be calling your doctor, calling your surgeon, saying like, something is not right here. Like we're, we're not heading in the right direction. So it's always important, you know, if you have that parent instinct that things aren't moving in the right direction, like always, always, always feel free to reach out to your doctor. Um, you can always start with your general pediatrician and they can re- refer back and, and consult with, with the surgeons or just go back to the surgeons. Um Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Kohler, for that wonderful discussion on managing pediatric pain. We hope that um, families were able to take something away from it. So let's summarize today's topic. Yeah. So we started off talking about the pain. It's important to address it, but we do have concerns about, you know, the opioid dependence. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And a way that we assess pediatric pain are through different scales. So there may be some face scales that your child uses to identify pain. They may rate it on a scale from zero to 10 and the pain will be treated accordingly. There are several non-pharmacologic techniques to address pain. And one of the primary ones is getting child life specialists involved using sugar water or applying localized ice packs to the area of pain. 
of course, or distraction with iPads. That's always a great one. Um, usually our first line go-to pain medicine in most operations is, is Tylenol or Motrin or their equivalents IV. Those are great. In big procedures, we may need to do something like a nerve block, um, depending on if it's local, or we may need to use opioid pain medications. But of course, it's always important to know the risks of opioids. And we also talked about how important it is to assess pain, uh, keeping racial equity in mind. If you're going to be sent home with an opioid pain medication, it's important to know that you should only be using these medications if your pain is not responding to other things like Tylenol or Motrin, and that we would expect the amount that you need to use these to go down over time. Really, you should not, as a kid, be needing more than one prescription or more than what, what your surgeon sent you home with. And of course, it's very important to dispose of these properly. So as soon as your kiddo is no longer needing pain medicine, so you don't want to hang on to that. So reach out to your pharmacist, reach out to your doctor and get those medicines out of the house ASAP. And that reminds me of a joke. <laughs> Let's hear it. This is about a guy named Pete. Uh-huh. Do you know why Pete takes painkillers? Why? For Pete's ache. <laughs> That's not a great one. <laughs> it was hard to find a clean pain joke. <laughs> yeah. We would like to thank Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon here at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for joining us on today's episode. Although Dr. Dean and I take responsibility for any errors or misinformation. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.